This morning we'll be in Exodus chapter 20. Invite you to turn there with me if you have a Bible. Uh, We'll be in Exodus chapter 20, looking at the second commandment. We're continuing our working through the Ten Commandments within the context of Exodus as we've been going through that book and we come to the second commandment, the first commandment, of course, being, you shall have no other gods before me. Be reading Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word again this Sunday morning, we ask that you would be working in our hearts teaching us the truth that you want us to know. And Lord, we ask that as a result of our time together this morning that you would fill us with a greater and more grateful understanding of who you are, who your Son is, and what you expect of us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First commandment, which we covered last week, is you shall have no other gods before me. That means that God requires our exclusive devotion. There's nothing else that we are to bring into his presence that would receive our worship. The greatest commandment, which is really a corollary of the first commandment, the greatest commandment which Jesus describes in the Gospels, and references Deuteronomy 6, is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. This means that our affection for God is to be all-consuming. The whole of our life is to be encompassed by the fact that God is our God, and we serve Him as His people. No portion of our life is to be left untouched by devotion to Him. The whole of our life given to our great God. This is the greatest commandment and the first commandment. This would mean, if we were to apply some logic, that the first or the greatest sin then is a failure to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We might think that a failure to love God with all that we are and have would be of just the level of negligence and nothing more than that, not necessarily too serious. We might think of it in the sense of having taken a test and we failed because, well, we didn't study. It's not like we really did anything wrong, we just didn't study. But any time that you don't do something right, you do do something wrong. 
And so not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is not just the absence of doing something right, it's also the presence of doing something wrong. What happens when you don't study for a test? Well, you think it's just an excuse, but in reality, you did do something. You stayed all up all night playing video games. You prioritized something highly above the responsibilities in front of you. Well, what happens when you don't love God? It's not just that you don't love Him. We're always loving something. It's that you love something else besides God. Again, this is the sin that is committed when any other sin is committed. This means that whenever, whether you murder or commit adultery or lie or steal or anything that is considered by God, it's not just that you are doing that, it is also that you are not loving God also. Or as God puts it in this text, it is those who hate me. In verse 5, it's not just committing idolatry, it's also hating God. Not just not loving Him, but hating Him. This is why David could say, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It almost seems like a ludicrous statement after he's committed adultery and murder to gesture that he only sinned against God, but he understands that every sin is rooted in another sin, which is a lack of love for God. You could ask the question, really take a poll of either within the church or outside of the church, both would be illuminating, you could ask the question, what is the worst of sins that is ruining our world. Within the church, if we were to ask that, many would immediately look to the manifestations of sin we see in our society. Look at things that Bible-believing Christians would describe as sin, such as homosexuality or transgenderism. If we polled the culture, they may think such sins as murder, bigotry, or abuse would be top the list. You can poll others, and other things might come up, like racism or greed or pride, abortion. All of these things certainly are sinful, but which of them is the worst? Well, the fact is that underlying all of those sins is another sin that ties them all together. All of those sins, in a sense, are against other humans, other creatures who are made in God's image, but Underneath all of those sins is the first sin against God himself. Romans chapter 1 is a very helpful passage of scripture. And it describes to us that prior to the manifestation of sin that reveals what our flesh desires, there is underlying that a predetermination about how we interact with God. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 starts, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See what the Apostle Paul is doing there? He's helping us understand that every person has exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And we worship things that are not God. And so, it says, as a consequence of that great exchange, exchanging God, who is deserving of all of our worship, with something that does not deserve our worship, there's a consequence to that. And Paul says in Romans 1.24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The reason that there's external manifestations of sin is because underlying all of that is a fundamental exchange where we have replaced God with that which is not God. And so Paul goes on to explain why these manifestations come. He says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, there are many who would acknowledge that they're horrific societal sins that are out there, very few would say that the greatest sin that exists in our world has to do with the fact that God has been rejected. That's the problem. We want to fix the morality. We want to fix... What we see is wrong in the world. We want to legislate things. We want people to conform to standards of ethics. And certainly we understand why that would be good for those people who are not in following God's ways. But underneath all of it is an exchange of the fundamental reality that God is God. And we've replaced it with something that is not God. What's wrong with the world is rooted in this great exchange. The problem is a problem of worship. When you don't worship the right God, your whole moral compass is adrift in the sea of your flesh. And the only lasting change that can address the needs of our society is the transformation that is rooted in the gospel When we find that Jesus Christ is the forgiver of our sins and leads us back into a right relationship with God the Father. But it's more personal than just looking at them. That's the easy thing. The hard thing is to look within. Do you have persistent sin in your life? Do you have that Sin you just can't shake off. Do you ever think of it as primarily a problem of worship? That you've exchanged the glory of God for some created thing? It's not just some thing that you need to try harder to do better. At the bottom of it all is an exchange that has taken place. As I've pondered this second commandment that urges the Israelites, and by application us, 
not to worship false images and false gods. So I've thought about this and prayed about this. I've prayed for myself and for you that God would be pleased to reveal any way that we have exchanged the worship of the living God with worship for something that is insignificant and created. And as I've pondered this and prayed about this, not been led to any great revelations of idolatry, but I've been led to rather a greater appetite to make God the exclusive object of all of my worship and devotion. To realize how great, powerful, awesome, kind, gracious our God is, and everything else just pales in comparison to Him. And He deserves all of our devotion and worship. And to replace Him with something lesser is so atrocious, it should make our stomachs churn. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, speaks about exclusive worship. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. It speaks of the ways we are tempted to replace our worship with something lesser. As we get into the details of these verses, I'll just ask some simple questions about it, much like we did last week if you were here, about the first commandment. As we work through this and see what God commands about this second commandment. First of all, the first question we want to ask is, what is the second commandment forbidding? What is the second commandment forbidding? Clearly, the second commandment forbids the nation of Israel, who are the original recipients of this law, from creating any kind of statue or form that would become the object of their Worship. The same word used there for a carved image, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, is the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 34 when Moses is told to make ten or to make the two tablets of stone. It's used for cutting stone, and so you get a good picture of what this is. It's somebody by some mechanism or tool taking some inanimate object and forming it into a certain shape. In the case of Moses in Exodus 34, nothing was wrong with it. It was just putting stone into a tablet form that would be used to contain the law. But in this context, it is taking stone or wood or gold or silver or some other metal and fashioning it and forming it into some image. And the image would be something like what you can see in the skies above either the birds or the stars or the sun or the moon or what you see on earth and some of the animals or what you see in the sea, some sort of fish or sea creature. And God is forbidding the people of Israel from taking some inanimate object and fashioning it into anything that they could perceive. might think, that's not really all that hard not to do. I mean, I don't walk past a block of wood and think, man, I just want that to look like a cow so I can bow down and worship it. We don't really function that way, and yet Israel struggled with this for their whole existence in the Old Testament up until they came back from exile. And Israel, we ought not to think 
is a people that is so far removed and so different from us that the kind of things they struggle with, we would never struggle with. Sure, you may not be tempted to make a graven image, but the principle of the thing, that we are tempted to worship and give our energies and our activities and our devotion to things that are created rather than the Creator, is prolific throughout our society. Israel struggled with this, really from the start, Exodus 32, that famous story of the golden calf where Moses is up on the mountain for a length of time, and they wonder what happened to him, and they say to his brother Aaron, hey, do something about this, make for us a god. And so Aaron says, give me your jewelry, I'll take it, and he fashioned it into the form of a calf, and he says, behold your gods, Israel who brought you out of Egypt. The people worshipped the thing. Further illustrations in Judges, chapter 17, a horrible story about a man who stole from his mother some silver. His mother didn't know what happened to it. He finally fesses up, and his mother blesses him for telling her, and she gives him back the money and says, basically as a reward, go and make an image out of this, and so this man Micah has this money and goes to a silversmith who made it into a carved image in a metal image. And it was in his house, and it just gets worse from there because he gets his own priest. And it's just a debacle if you haven't read it. Read Judges 17 and 18 and see what cascades out of idolatry. Or how about King Jeroboam and First Kings 17? who was promised by God to take the northern kingdom of Israel after Solomon had fallen. And yet, when he received the kingdom, he got worried that his people would head south to Jerusalem, and so he came up with a plan to make two golden calves, and he placed one at the southern border of his nation and one at the northern border, so that the people wouldn't have to go out of his borders in order to go worship a god. And he tells the people... Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And it gets worse from there because he now, like Micah and Judges, gathers together for himself his own priests. He even sets up his own holy day. He basically establishes his own religion. When God forbids the people from making a carved image, or any likeness. It is to prevent the people from establishing their own religion. To keep them from offering the worship to things that are so much lesser than the real God. When he makes this commandment, some people will ask the question, is, is God just forbidding you know, making idols for other gods? You know, gods of Egypt or the gods of Canaan? Or is he forbidding making an image of Yahweh? Which is it? And the answer to that is, well, yes, it's both. He forbids both. You shouldn't do either of those. The point is that there should be no carved image that receives the devotion of worship, either of Yahweh representing him or of some other god. And the reason is because as soon as you try to make some carved image look like the invisible God, you inevitably mess it up. 
And so when you look at that thing and you think that is the invisible God that I am worshiping, you have brought him down to something he isn't, and so you are worshiping a non-God. And you cannot make an image of the true God. It just can't work. And so when you make any graven image as your object of worship, you are not worshiping God. You're worshiping a false God, a God of your own imagination. This should have a quick qualification that this is not forbidding artistic expression. Now, artistic expression could go way too far, of course, but even within the building of the tabernacle and the temple, God had very qualified and and skillful men weave in some representations of cherubim. The mercy seat had... um, gold cherubim with their wings hovering over the mercy seat. And all of these were symbolic and representative. They were not to be objects of worship by any stretch. And so this does not seem to be forbidding artistic expression, but rather the crux of the issue is in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Should not receive your worship nor should we try to represent God with any image. That's the fundamental essence of this forbidding command. So as you go home, you don't have to rip all of the artwork off your walls. You don't have to take your garden gnomes and smash them. That's not the point of this. You may want to. It may be ugly, but you don't have to. I do recall us receiving a children's book that was meant to teach our kids about God from the Old Testament, and it had a drawing of God in there as a man, and we threw the book in the trash. We weren't going to use that because we don't want our kids to try to picture God in that way. Well, that's what the first command, or second commandment is forbidding. Let's ask the question, why must the second commandment be kept? Well, most basically, the answer is given for us there in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The reason that we are to keep the second commandment is because God is a jealous God. Now, you might have associations of jealousy as that kind of petty emotion that gets upset when somebody has something that you want, and it feels just very childish and immature, imbecile. But we must not come anywhere close of accusing God as having the kind of jealousy that we often have towards other things that God or that other people have that we want. Jealousy for God is not of course, a sinful trait. Rather, jealousy for God is a fiery zeal for what rightly belongs to Him. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's glory belongs to Him alone and none others. And so if we try to give it to others, He gets rightly jealous because they don't deserve it. Any object of our affection that is termed worship 
anything that receives our worship and adoration, God gets jealous over because He deserves the glory. All of it. His jealousy is a fiery zeal for what rightly belongs to Him. Not only does His glory belong to Him and Him alone so that we cannot impute to some image the idea that that's our Creator, that's our Maker, that's our God, but He's also jealous over His people. The beginning of the Ten Commandments, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He doesn't share his people with other gods. He wants them for himself. Just as it is right for a husband to be jealous over the exclusive marital love from his wife, it is right for God to be jealous over his people. It's a good jealousy. It's a right jealousy. So most basically, we keep the commandment because God is a jealous God, but also because there are consequences for failing. Again, in verse 5, the outworking of God being a jealous God or the manifestation of God being a jealous God is that when people do not give him that exclusive devotion of worship, God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. might wonder, what is that talking about? What does that mean? How does God do that? Well, first of all, understand when it talks about iniquity, it's not just a generic word for sin, it's talking about something that is crooked. That's what the word means, something that is crooked. One theologian defines it as religious and ethical deviance. It's going away from that which is true and right and good. And for those who commit the iniquity, particularly in this case, is the supplanting of God with that which is not God. That's a crooked and devious thing to do. God will visit the iniquity of the father who does that, the one who hates the true God, on the children to the third and fourth generation. You think, well, how is, how is that fair? How is that fair for the children to be under the iniquity of the father? Well, I think the principle that you have to take away from this is that no sin is done in a vacuum. Do you realize that? No sin, no matter how hidden, how private, how exclusive to you, leaves you the only one affected by it. Every sin that we commit is going to create an atmosphere in which other people live. Some people think that Indulging in pornography is really no sin because the only person that it's affecting is them. They do it in their own privacy and they're the only one who knows about it and no one else ever gets touched by it. That's such a great falsehood because iniquity twists us up and it messes up how we even interact with other people and view other people. It messes up how we use our time, our energy, our mental capacities. 
And that, by nature, affects other people. And so, if there were to be a father who decides that he is going to devote himself to the worship of an idol, he's going to create an atmosphere within his home of idolatry that is going to be the air in which the children breathe. In the kind of society that Exodus is taking place in, it would be a society a little bit different in ours in that there would be families that were made up of more than just one and two generations. There would be extended generations living within a an household. So there would be the father, there would be the son, there would be the son's sons, and then there might even be the son's son's sons. So there would be three or four generations all connected together living within one family unit. And if that father decides that he is going to give his devotion to some non-God, that is going to create an atmosphere in which all of his family members are living and breathing in. And this jealous God who hates idolatry limits the duration of that atmosphere to the three or four generations. doesn't mean that there can't be those within that family that are saved or follow the truth. just means that the consequences of their parents are going to, of course, influence and affect them. We have to keep that truth in mind with this truth from Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. It says that fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. It will be the sin of each that will bring about the ultimate consequence. But don't be deluded that your sin is isolated to you. God in His jealousy seeks to limit the effect and influence of that idolatry by constraining it within that family unit. But he goes on to show his graciousness within verse, in verse 6 that he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Might scratch our heads at the justness of there being iniquity visited from fathers onto children, but we should also scratch our heads at the graciousness of God who extends his steadfast love to thousands of generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. This ought to remind you of Romans chapter 5 where Paul writes regarding the Lord Jesus Christ in comparison to Adam that the gift is not like the trespass. It means God's grace is greater than the sin of mankind. And God's jealousy is not only manifest in judgment, it's also manifest in his grace to show his grace to people who love him. And the people who love him, of course, are the people who've been delivered by him. It's those Israelites who have been rescued out of the slavery of Egypt, who know the gracious and powerful hand of God, who will come to realize that this God is worth following, trusting, and obeying. And they come to him by faith and will obey him out of faith. And God will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Just as sin is not in a vacuum, neither is the love of God. Why do we keep the second commandment? We keep it because there are consequences 
for not keeping it, but also we keep it because God is a gracious God who extends His steadfast love to those who respond to His love and faith. We also keep the second commandment because ultimately idols are nothing and they bring shame. The scriptures really make fun of idol worship because they picture somebody who looks at a piece of wood and decides that I'm going to take half of that wood and use it to start a fire over which I'm going to cook my dinner I'm going to take the other half of that wood and use it to make a God that I'm going to bow down and worship as the maker of my dinner. It's ridiculous. Isaiah 44 verse 15 puts it in these terms, that that piece of wood becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a God and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. To worship any created thing is to worship something that cannot help you. We cannot make images because they're not going to help you. I think of those who live in Rio de Janeiro and they've got that giant statue of Christ, Christ the Redeemer, standing over their city. And I wonder how many people look at that and think, because I can see that, Jesus is going to help me. That statue has done nothing for anyone in the history of its existence. It's empty, it's bankrupt, it has no strength to do one single thing. Same thing with any image we make up of God that is not true to Him. Idolatry is empty, it's vain, and it's not supposed to be this way, that we worship the created rather than the Creator. Nothing besides God was to receive our worship There's an image I saw of an Egyptian relief, and it has a a human bowing down. And it looks very reverent, very profound, but the thing that it's bowing down to is a crocodile with a crown on it. It's the Egyptian god Sebek Ray. And you look at that, a human being, Someone who is made in the image of God, bowing down before an image of a crocodile, should strike you as just ludicrous. It strike you that way because mankind is the height of God's creation. He's the pinnacle of it all. He was made to rule over all creation. And here, things have gotten so twisted, so messed up, that you find humans bowing down to the very things that they are supposed to rule over. That's how messed up things have become. But there is one that we are to bow down before, and that, of course, is the true God. And idolatry steals his worship. One theologian says that as often as any form is assigned to God, His glory is corrupted by an impious lie. Deuteronomy chapter 4 describes these events that happen at Mount Sinai. And Moses urges the people of Israel, he says, Watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly. 
by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. Moses makes the argument, when God appeared, he appeared behind a cloud of smoke and fire. You couldn't see him. Why do you think that you can make some image that represents him? You're just going to mess it up. It robs him of his unique glory when we try to bring him down to our level. There's um, one more point that I need to make before we wrap this up. The core of the second commandment is that you cannot worship a distorted image of God. Any kind of distorted image of God leads to false worship. And that false worship is going to cascade into a, a false life full of iniquity that is manifest in our fleshly sins. But how do we do that now? Well, you cannot keep the second commandment. You cannot keep it unless you worship, trust, and follow the image that God has revealed to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God. This is so amazing because we've been expressly told not to worship any graven image. But here we are told in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And so now we cannot come to God unless we come to Him through Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Or John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's referring to Jesus Christ. Let's turn with me to First John chapter 5. I want you to see this as we close. First John is a book written to give people assurance of their salvation in Christ, but also to keep people from following a path of heresy. There were false teachings that were rising up all over the place in that time, as there is today, false teachings about Jesus. And so it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It goes on to say that whoever says that Jesus did not come in the flesh is not from God. And so he wants us to have a right and biblical view of who Jesus is. That's kind of the essence of the book as far as a polemic goes. But the end of 1 John chapter 5, the end of the book, after he's trying to give assurance and point people to true teaching about Jesus, he says in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. Notice, you cannot know God the Father unless you know Him through God the Son. And he says, And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He 
is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends with this remarkable phrase in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You might think, what in the world are you talking about, John? I'm not tempted to bow down before some graven image. John knows that. He is writing to people who live in an atmosphere where Jesus Christ is distorted. And if you follow a distorted Christ, you're effectively following a graven image. Keep yourselves from idols. This requires us, listen to this, to have a rigorous, discerning mind toward any teaching about the Son of God. To make sure that it is absolutely biblical so that anything we see or hear that is representing Christ, we have to be rigorously discerning to make sure we don't erect a false image of Christ in the place of the true one, lest we fall down and worship something that is not the real Christ. Be so careful about what our world does with our Jesus. We cannot worship a graven image. He demands our utmost love and worship. Reserve it for him, the true God, and his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would keep us from idols. Very few of us will be tempted with bowing down before an image, but Lord, there is such a such a world of false teaching about our Savior out there. Oh, keep us, Lord. You deserve our exclusive obedience and devotion. Help us and protect us. Oh, Lord, you've been so good to us. We do want to worship you, the true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You deserve it all. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.